I finished in Turkey and my dad had flown over to meet me and he said to me, look, how do you feel about going back to work? <laughs> and I said, well, it's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> like I've had such a good time here. And he said to me, he said, well, why are you going back to work? Huh. I said, well, <laughs> we, did, we need to work, don't we? <laughs> and he said, if you don't enjoy it, you shouldn't do it. And so when I got back to work, the first day back, I said to my boss, all right, I'm going to hand in my notice. I don't want to work anymore. I'm going to become a professional cyclist. <laughs> and this is like, you know, not long after coming out of rehab. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Yeah. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around yeah. once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McKelvin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. So excited to bring you today's conversation with Jack Thompson, someone I've had on my radar for a good few years. Another awesome, longer in-person conversation. Uh, awesome sound quality. Thanks to the Athletic Affair folks. Big thanks to them for giving us use of their studio for our time here in Girona. Uh, Jack is a rock star of an ultra distance cyclist um, and someone who has a mission that goes beyond just setting records. He is a, a fundraiser and big advocate for mental health um, as someone who was diagnosed uh, with two different mental health diagnoses when he was 13 years old, which led to really serious bout of addiction, but ultimately, as you'll hear, became a bit of a superpower uh, once he discovered his athletic abilities and, and love for riding far. Um, I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's uh, very heartfelt. He's a super, super genuine guy, and I really enjoyed getting to know him. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Durango Derby. This isn't an ad. I just want to give a little announcement because I, I love this race very much. Durango Derby registration is open. This is an event that I loved last year. It happened uh, last September in its inaugural event. Um, September 1st is the race weekend this year, and I'll be there along with a whole bunch of other awesome local pros. And it sounds like a good few folks will be traveling in to attend this year too. So Go to DurangoDerby.com to get yourself registered, and I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, enjoy this conversation with Jack. Catch you after the show. All right, Jack. After about half an hour of uh, wrestling with mics, we're rolling. Um, you drove in. It's funny. We were we were sorting out kind of when exactly we'd be meeting at the studio, and you're like, yeah, I'm just figuring out Girona parking, which is, um, it sounds funny, but not typically Girona isn't really a place where you're wrestling with parking too much or cars because the lifestyle here often, uh, isn't really reliant on cars, which is nice. Um, but you live out towards the coast. Yeah. I understand. Um, where exactly, where exactly do you live and are you renting out there or do you own a home now and, and live there full time? So we recently made the commitment to buy a house in Spain. So we've moved down to a little town, Santa Cristina Diaro, 
Uh, it's about 10 minutes from Placer de Aro, the town most people know, famous for the, the cake shop, the coffee oh, shop down there. Okay. Um, and we just decided yeah, we've been looking for a little while to get out of town. We've been here for about four years. My partner's from here uh, just for a more sort of relaxed way of life. You guys have probably seen Girona's. It's quite a busy place now and you can't escape the sound of the free hub. Uh, so and true. we decided we'd sort of had <laughs> enough of it. We needed to escape cycling a little bit. So we're down there now. It's great. The sound of the free hub. Yeah, that's true. It is funny. I mean, it makes sense when you hear um, just how how deep the pool goes here in regards to cyclists. And obviously the, the talent grabs the headlines that lives in Girona, but just the cycling culture here is uh, kind of 360 degrees, 365 days a year for sure. Um, and when we first started spending time here, that was very, very exciting. And it still is exciting to an extent. It has lots of pluses, but, um, we're, we're just now starting to get a picture of just how much of a, a bubble it can feel like. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny, actually last year when we went up to Figueres and, uh, checked out the Dali museum and we stepped off the train, which is just a 15 minute train ride and no one spoke English. Um, and it immediately felt very different. That was kind of our first clue that, yeah, oh, Girona is a little bit different yeah. than the rest of Catalonia for sure. And I've, I've been here for a few years now and I, I didn't really learn the local language, you know, and it's not until I've moved out of town yeah. that I'm sort of forced to learn it because English isn't spoken as much out there. So that's quite nice as well that I'll come away with a new life skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I, I've known of you for a good handful of years. Uh, your accomplishments make headlines plenty frequently. Um, so I, I became familiar with you, I think just by, uh, I don't remember what it was specifically, but it was probably some absurdly big ride. It might've been the, the chasing tour, uh, project you did uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but I first caught sight of you at Senate, uh, the other day, which is, um, kind of a performance training center, um, that a lot of, um, uh, cyclists here in town use a lot of the pros use. Um, and I was like, man, he lives in the Drona area as well. That part had, had gone over my head. I didn't know that. He's in the bubble. He's in the bubble. <laughs> He's escaped the bubble. Um, so straight away you went on my list, uh, of people I'd like to talk to. Um, and of course we'll, we'll spend plenty of time going over your background and, and some of your different accomplishments, but kind of the way selfishly and jealously I've I've come to look at you as you're, you're sort of someone that does a lot of the stuff that I want to be doing, but don't have the time right now to do <laughs> like the, the fun, adventurous, creative, um, sort of, uh, longer distance ultra cycling, uh, riding styles and, and just challenges that you cook up for yourself oftentimes for a good cause that I try to jam in at the end of my race season, but you've made a full-time gig out of it. Um, and there's obviously been a lot of years of history and, and different interesting twists and turns that have gotten you to this point. But can you, just as a jumping off point, give us a, a thumbnail sketch of how you would describe yourself as a cyclist? Yeah. You know, if you're in a restaurant, of course, many people are like, oh, do you ride the, you're a pro. Do you ride the Tour de France? No. Do you do Red Bull <laughs> Rampage? No. Okay. What do you do? How do you make so, a living? <laughs> what kind of cyclist are you? So how would you describe to that sort of person the kind of cyclist you are? Um, I guess I'd say I'm, I'm a bit of a lone wolf. Like I like to do things alone. Um, I've got a background where I suffer from obsessive 
compulsive personality type. And so I find, I guess, I enjoy going away and doing things, um, long distance things by myself. So typically every year I do two or three ultra style um, events. And when I say events, they're not events as in races because I don't really like to race. They're more coming up with some sort of idea or some sort of concept working out how I could bring it to life, preparing for it, and then going about undertaking it. And typically we shoot a film around it. Um, so that's sort of how I, I spend my year. Yep. Um, and as you, as you touched on, a lot of them are for, you know, non-for-profit or working with a series of schools to raise, you know, the awareness of mental health issues within adolescence. And there's always a second storyline to each of the projects that we undertake. Yeah. So for most uh, professional cyclists, their year, you know, on the road, they might have anywhere from 60 to 100 race days a year. Off-road racers might have, you know, 12 to 30. Um, how many events, quote unquote, or, or specific goals um, comprise your year? I know it's, it probably changes quite a bit year to year. I think 2022 is maybe a pretty unique year, which we'll talk about. Um, but how would you kind of define that? I would say like actual event or you know, working days where I'm sort of going and putting myself in a bit of a hole, trying to achieve something, I'd say anywhere from, yeah, 15 to 20 days a year. Oh, wow. That's, that's even more than I do. But some of them are multi-day. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that might include like a seven-day trip here yeah. or a three-day trip there. And then yeah. the total of that is about 20 to 30 days, I'd say, a year. Yeah. What that kind of reminds me of actually is um, some of the, the high level uh, ultra runners and, and mountain running athletes. I, I have a couple of friends in that world and was just kind of blown away by the fact that they really have to focus on three, maybe maximum four events per year just because they do put you in such a hole. Yeah. And I think also there's the, there's the athletic side that everyone looks at. It's like, oh, you're fatigued because you've been doing this. But it's also the the preparation side of it, not even the training side. It's like how do we bring the project to life and get the sponsors on board and how do we make it, you know, a success as opposed to going and doing something and nobody actually hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And I find that's where a lot of the energy goes in preparation. It's not just the training, it's the making sure yeah. it actually sees the headline or it actually gets covered. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So at what point, let, let's... I do want to talk about your early life. People will be able to hear in your voice that you're from Australia. Um, <laughs> but before that, before we start kind of moving backwards, I'd like to hear at what point you discovered this style of cycling and decided that it was going to be the style of cycling for you because I doubt it was your entry point. No. So <laughs> without going right into my childhood, because perhaps we'll touch on that later, it was in around, would have been around 2018. So I'd just come on well, 20, 2016, I'd say. I'd just come out of rehab with the drug addiction. And when I came out, my dad said to me, hey, look, maybe you need to get back on a bike and this is a way for you to sort of get back on track. And I didn't really like the idea of going and racing again. Like I'd raced as a, as a, as a young guy growing up. and On know, the road or? On the road, yeah. I'd enjoyed it, but again, I hadn't enjoyed the racing aspect of it. I enjoyed the training to go and race and the going and doing the long rides in preparation for the race. And so when I did get back on a bike, dad sort of 
pulled my arm and twisted it and I eventually went for a ride with him around the river in, in Perth where I grew up, I decided to, you know, I thought maybe I can sort of just go and explore and that's my way of using the bike as a bit of therapy. And growing up, my dad had set himself this wild task of actually riding his bike around the world. So he, that, yeah. he was off doing these adventures as we were growing up and I think that rubbed off on me and I thought, well, maybe I can start doing these adventure-style things. And I started doing a little bit of work with tourism boards, looking at doing sort of long-distance events in different countries and trying to promote the country as a cycling destination. Mm. Uh, and I kind of worked out, wow, this is, this is what makes me tick. Like I like to go somewhere different. I like to put myself out there. I like the travel aspect of it. How can I make a career out of it? And it was sort of this wild plunge. Like yeah. I was working, I'd studied at uni and was working in that field and yeah, it was just a risk I took. I thought if I'm not happy doing what I'm doing, I need to make a change. And the change was, all right, I'm going to try and become a professional cyclist, but I'm not going to race. Hmm. Did you have any mentors or folks that you were kind of looking up to other than your dad that made you think that that sort of thing could even exist? Growing up, we all, we followed like surfing, snowboarding, like mountain sports and we'd always go and watch like the Warren Miller films and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like I think that without knowing it at the time, that was almost the inspiration, like guys and girls going and doing adventures and whether it was kayaking or snowboarding or big mountain skiing, mm -hmm. it's like how can I do that but do it on a bike? Yeah. And I think, yeah, in hindsight, that was probably inspiration growing up. That's cool. Bringing me to where I am now. Yeah, yeah. So what was what was the first – well, actually – before we talk about maybe your first kind of idea or project, um, at what point did you start kind of pushing the boundaries of endurance, your own personal endurance or adventure style riding and having it feel like a positive thing? Where, where, what was the light bulb moment where you're like, whoa, pushing yeah. deep, pushing far, this lights me up? So I was, I was working at the time like a typical nine to five and I remember thinking... I was preparing for, for you know, a series of events that I wanted to do locally and before work, like I said, I've got a bit of an obsessive personality so I set myself a goal, all right, before work I'm going to ride 100 kilometres every day for a week and mm. then I'd go to work and I found, like, well, I'm super tired at work but I actually feel bloody good because of it and that was almost like the tipping point that actually doing the long distance was sort of keeping me in a really good headspace. It was ticking a lot of boxes it was a routine. I felt good because it was exercise. I felt like I'd achieved something. And I'd go to work and I was sort of like, well, what am I doing at work? <laughs> you know, I, I want to be on the bike. Mm -hmm. And that was the tipping point. Then I realized, all right, I need to work at how to make this into a career. Interesting. So was it the, was it the goal of 100K every morning? Like as someone that has obsessive compulsive disorder, does that kind of light up your brain in a way that really gets you focused and happy and excited and, and gives you some level of purpose? Is there a connection there or is it that maybe plus the actual, I guess what I'm getting at is like, were you at that time when you were first kind of um, dipping your toe in these waters, was it checking off these goals that was really exciting you or was it also the... Uh, moments in the bike ride itself what what does that balance look like does that make sense for me it was more ticking off the goals yeah and i'm still that way inclined like every morning i've got a list of stuff i want to achieve in the day and then i feel good because i've achieved it yeah 
And I've only sort of realised now the power of having that list, but back then, not realising it at the time, I think it was because, all right, I've set a goal, I'm going to go and do it. I went and achieved it, boom, there's a tick on the paper. And I felt good about that tick uh, that I'd achieved what I wanted to do. And it gave me a sense of control. I think at work, being a young guy in the construction industry, I always felt almost inadequate. I didn't feel like I had control. I felt like it was always your boss that had control or the guys that had been there for longer. Mm. And for me, this was suddenly I was in control of what I wanted to do and I could then go and do it. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So did you find over time that you – because when you're checking off a big – even just a 100-kilometer ride, it takes a little while to get to that check mark point to to complete it. Um, There's plenty of time to be in your thoughts – um, take us in your, inside your head a little bit, like as you're going on, we'll just use a hundred K ride as an example right now. Um, are you just kind of like counting down the kilometers or are you a little bit more immersed in the experience? Has that changed over time? Like what, what is all, what is the bike riding experience like for you when the check mark is so key? So I'm a bit obsessed with symmetry. Uh-huh. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a funny thing, but so I, I get like a great sense of satisfaction out of thinking about the symmetry on the bike while I'm riding and yeah. and that almost becomes like a bit of a meditation, like thinking about the left leg and the right leg and you, you can maybe relate to that a little bit as well. Yeah, of course. And then that combined with music and beats per minute in like a song combined oh. with like what's going outside where the sun's rising and you're on the bike path and, you know, there might be a spider web or, you know, just the different things you see, it all sort of for me combines into a bit of an experience and I've sort of started using the term like meditation in motion. For me, it's I, I can't sit still. And when I'm on the bike, although I'm moving, that's my sort of meditative state where I'm actually, my mind feels still because I'm sort of, yeah, I'm in control of what's going on. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it's funny. So I don't know if this will uh, be, if this will sound familiar, but... Uh, I've noticed for myself in, in rides sometimes little, actually even just day to day, I'll make it more than bike riding. I have some little tendencies as well, where if I, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said this out loud, Nicole might laugh. She's in the room here, but if I, uh, if I'm riding and I brush the inside of my knee against my top tube, <laughs> I really have this desire to brush the other knee against <laughs> the top tube to balance it out. And usually I do. Like I, I make a conscious decision to do that. Yeah, exactly. She's laughing right now. So I've, I've wondered, you know, do I have a little bit of OCD as well in, in your journey of learning about it? Um, is it sort of a spectrum where people just kind of follow along the spectrum? Like what, cause you've been, uh, diagnosed yeah. with this. Uh, what have you learned about it? Do most people have some of this? Sometimes, like some of the stuff I do is almost like a little bit crazy and I think that's probably quite high on the spectrum of OCD. (laughs) As an example, I went through a stage where in order to give me that sense of control, I had to blink my eyes twice (laughs) with my lips Uh and then nod my head like this with my hands closed. And like that was extreme because that was almost controlling me and that's when I was seeing a psychologist and trying to work around it. But I think having a little bit of OCD, you can almost use it to your advantage. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I think when it is, you know, you're doing the blinks and the weird things with your hands, that's, yeah, definitely high on the spectrum. 
But it sounds like you maybe do some little things as well that are, you know, quite low on the spectrum, but is maybe still an OCD tendency. Yeah. I find I don't do it anymore, but I used to like if I liked someone, I'd wink with my right eye and if I disliked them, I'd wink with my left. Wow. Just weird little things. And I feel weird. I feel sort of silly that I used to do it. But at the time it was like that was serious for me. And if I didn't do it, something was going to happen and that was Uh my sense of control. So Interesting. So we'll, I'm really excited to talk about how this has um, shaped your bike experience and kind of how it's um, inspired different things. And in a lot of ways, like you said, it becomes a superpower. Like some of the things you've accomplished on the bike, no doubt have um, uh, been benefited by, by really caring about process yeah. and numbers and regularity and all that sort of thing. Um, but before we... We talk more about bike riding. I think I saw that you were first diagnosed with this when you were 13 years old. Yeah. Um, and uh, as well, was it depression at the yeah at the so same time? It was depression I was diagnosed with to begin with. Okay. And then, yeah, basically we noticed I had some weird tendencies that were then diagnosed as obsessive compulsive. So I guess I've, I've, I've been medicated for depression for why, 20 odd years now. And like I say, it's a, um, an achievement. It's not an achievement. It's just a, a milestone in my life is that I recently came off all the medication. Came off the medication? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, partly because my partner's a psychologist and she sort of said, hey, perhaps it's not a good thing to be on medication for this long. Mm. Perhaps you should try coming off it. And I was always of the opinion, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I yeah. sort of felt good. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to come off. And over a period of about two months, I slowly weaned myself off what I was taking and I actually feel feel great for it. So I'm I'm super stoked about that. But I, I've also never had a stigma um, with taking medication uh, if it's needed. And yeah, I spent most of my, my life on medication trying to um, combat the depression that I was suffering with. Um, and yeah, I think the, the medication and more recently like using the bike is, has actually been a, a way that I deal with the dark times. So, I mean, you almost just made it sound like coming off the medication was easy. Was it pretty um, smooth? It was pretty smooth up until probably the last two weeks. I started having some quite bad withdrawals, um, almost like dizzy spells when I would stand up, like low blood pressure kind of vibes. Um, but to be honest, aside from that, it wasn't too bad. I just did it really slowly. I didn't. I was like one tablet every day. I went to one tablet and one half tablet every second day and slowly, slowly, slowly came off it. Um, and yeah, like who knows, maybe I'll go back on it. But for now I'm, I'm, I'm not on it and, and I feel pretty good. So yeah, happy days. Do you mind me asking how it's kind of changed your, your day-to-day life? Not being on the medication? Yeah. It hasn't really changed anything. Like I would huh. take one tablet at nighttime when I went to bed and – you know, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't really doing anything. That was just part of the routine then and I just figured I was in a good headspace because I was taking it and yeah. it wasn't until I sort of challenged that whether I needed it and I did come off that I realised perhaps I actually didn't need it for huh. so long and, yeah, it hasn't changed anything. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. Um, even pre-13 years old. So you're from Perth, which is the on the western coast of Australia. Um, it's a, Australia as a whole is a place that I have a lot of curiosity about. 
Um, it just feels uh, so foreign and like, you know, as someone that enjoys being outside, quite the place to explore so much yeah. potential. Um, we've spent quite a bit of time in Tasmania yeah. uh, about, I guess, 18 months ago, maybe a little less. And it was funny hearing about, as we were just kind of beginning to glean little bits about Tasmania specifically, and then just kind of Australia as a whole and how the rest of Australia looks at Tassie and how it's a little <laughs> bit of this forgotten island to an extent and just kind of off doing its own thing. But the Western coast of Australia also kept coming up in conversation as kind of having uh, people have sort of a similar perspective about it. Sometimes like it's a little yeah. bit of the wild West. It sounds like it's, it's the second most isolated city on earth. Apparently. Really? Yeah. Wow. So we're closer to Indonesia than we are to any other capital city in, in Australia. Wow. It's a fun fact. Crazy. So describe Perth for us. How big a city is it? And what was it like to grow up there? So there's about 50 people live in Perth. We're still horse 50, and cart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was, okay. That was the first impressively deadpan delivery. I'm, I'm on guard now. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, like I, off the top of my head, I think I could be wild. I think it's, I don't know what the actual population is. Perth, like, think of like Barcelona, for example. Perth's similar to Barcelona in size. Oh, wow. But Perth's spread out. So like the city itself is 200 odd kilometers in length. So we have this massive oh, wow. sprawl along the coast. Huh. So you need a car to sort of get anywhere. Um, like it's a city, like we've, you know, there's big buildings and there's everything, but sort of once you venture away from the city, it does get quite remote and you sort of find yourself in, you know, the typical sort of red dirt, which you may have seen in yeah. Tassie and yeah. that sort of remote WA, um, remote uh, sort of Australian vibes that you see in the movies. Yeah. But Perth, like, was a great place to grow up. We, you know, had the beaches, we had good surf, we had, you know, everything you could want as a kid. Um, yeah. It's just if you ever wanted to travel anywhere, it was a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so I, one of my best friends is from Alice Springs. Oh, really? Yeah, and he also a professional cyclist, and he's uh, I've never visited there, but same sort of thing, you know. Australia just has these places because we think of speaking of juxtapositions. I mean, Europe versus where we spend most of our time in the west, southwestern U.S. Southwestern U.S. feels very wild and open, and you know, you you have to drive. Our our biggest major city probably is Denver and that's six hours away. Okay. Um, but Australia is just on a whole other level, man. Like hearing about Alice Springs, hearing about Perth and just the sheer vastness of it is, is really amazing. Um, what are, what are some of the main kind of, uh, ways of life and industries and, and that sort of thing in Perth? What are, what do people think of? So Perth, I guess famous, there's an Island off Perth called Rotnest. Uh-huh. which is where there used to be sort of like a, a prison island where they used to keep people. It's 20 kilometres off the coast, which is now like a, a nature reserve. Um, we've got the famous quokkas on the island, which the likes of Roger Federer, everyone gets a little selfie with the quokka while they're in, on the Is Rotten it a nest. bird? or It's like a cross between a wombat and a rat. It's oh, like wow. a, a big rat. Okay. Kind of huh. weird looking things. Um, Ta- like Tasmanian devil relative sort of or? Could be a long lost relative. I'm okay. unsure. 
who knows down there? Think, about, down think about a little kangaroo. It's like a little okay, kangaroo. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, like there's good surfing in Perth. Like we've got the Margaret River Masters down in the south, good wine. Um, the big thing in Western Australia is a big mining sector. So a mm. whole lot of the state is actually mining. Mm-hmm. Um, it's used for mining. So there's gold, there's iron, there's nickel. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of a long, long way away from Perth. So we're talking maybe 1,000, 1,500 kilometres away from the city itself. The city itself is like, like I say, it's like any other city in Australia. It's just we're surrounded by a lot of desert. Yeah, it's a long yeah. way to get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet it sounds like you come from a family of, of sort of international explorers and travelers. <laughs> I mean, your, your dad riding around the world, that's incredible. That's very unique. Uh, I think your your mom has summited Everest. I was reading, so she's been to base camp, base camp at Everest, which sounds humble, but my folks have done that too, and they yeah. have quite the stories and photos. It's no small, yeah, thing. it's no small thing. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I remember we were all having dinner, and she called us from one of the phones at base camp, and she was crying because of the altitude, and she was yeah. all emotional. Uh-huh. And my dad, my brother, and myself were sitting around the table laughing at her for crying. <laughs> brutal (laughs) wow but yeah and my brother's probably the most well one of the the interesting facts about my brother is he's he's world mr physique yeah i read that too yeah currently so last year 2023 20 no 2022 he won that wow so he retired after that he was like i've hit the top step it's only downhill from here Uh uh-huh but he's still the guy you don't want to go to the beach with just because you feel (laughs) inadequate yeah 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 (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other, talk about divergent paths. You're, you're, those are two very separate athletic paths you can take. Interesting. Yeah. He's an eating machine. Like I think the, as cyclists, the nutrition's important, but then if you look at the guys and girls doing the bodybuilding and the physique stuff, the nutrition's on a whole nother level. And it's been interesting actually chatting with him about the nutrition side of things, just because he has such a good knowledge of it and trying to apply some of that stuff to you know, if I go to the gym or if, you know, just trying to work out like how insulin spikes work and that sort of stuff that's really valuable for them, mm. trying to take that and apply it to myself. It's been, yeah, it's been interesting. Huh. And what's your brother's name? Chad. Chad. So both you and Chad end up being very high level athletes. Um, growing up, did it feel like you, was there any almost destiny involved there with the way your, your parents were, did, did they raise you sort of with similar values to the ways that they were spending their spare time, globetrotting, adventuring? Did you did it feel like that was something you wanted to gravitate towards? I think we were always just brought up with the idea that we could do whatever we wanted to do. Like they would support whatever we wanted to do. And I think that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. I know like I had mates that when I was at school or uni, there was always a pressure on them that they had to go and study law or they had to go and study medicine and there was always an expectation that we would go and do tertiary study after school. But when we got to the point where that wasn't working out or we didn't want to do it, there was never any obligation from mum or dad that, no, you know, you have to continue doing that. If they thought it was the right thing to do, they might have said, hey, look, we think you need to finish the degree and then maybe you go and do something else. Mm. But if we were, you know, properly against it, they were like, all right, well, we support what you want to do. Um, you need to work out a way to make it work financially. But, you know, if you can do that, then by all means go for it. It's your life. You get one shot at it go and do it. Yeah. And I think that was looking back, that was pretty powerful as a kid growing up having that. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So as you were growing up, 
did you have any ideas about what you wanted to do? What, what was, what were, what was Jack dreaming about as a young teen or, or were you yet? Oh, so I studied construction management and economics and that was off the back of I was watching home renovation shows <laughs> okay. on TV and I liked the idea of buying a house and renovating it and selling it and making money. Yeah. And so I went to the careers advisor and he was like, construction management and economics, that's the degree for you. Huh. And so I went and did it and I, had, I hated it. Like I got the degree and I worked in the industry. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just sort yeah. of, you know, knew that uni was a good option. I should go to uni. That's what he said I should do. I was lucky I applied and I got a scholarship to go and do it. Um, but looking back, it wasn't, yeah, it was a stepping stone to where I am today. Yeah, interesting. How much did the, so you, going back to your diagnosis at 13, how much did that shape your adolescence, do you think? Did it, because it doesn't sound like you found sort of a, a life's passion until a little bit later in life. Yeah. Um, and you you kind of had to walk through fire a little bit, it sounds like, to yeah. get to that point. Can I you... struggled a lot at school. Okay. Like I was always almost like the weird kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. I struggled. That social interaction, I struggled with it. Mm. Um, I, I didn't want to be at school. I hated having to be there from nine to three or whatever it was. Like I... I felt like a sense of um, entrapment at school and even going into university, I think that was partly to blame why I ended up sort of using the drugs is I was almost trying to create an identity of myself and I didn't know who I was or what I was doing and at the time, you know, you turn 18 and you go out and you start partying. Yeah. If I took more than everyone else was taking, then you know, I was sort of Superman and, mm. you know, this has mm-hmm. led me down this sort of dark path coupled with the obsessive personality, I'd do it and then I'd want to do more and then I'd want to push the boundaries always. Mm. And so it was a, it was like I didn't have a bad upbringing but I struggled all throughout my childhood and through the teens just because I didn't know where I belong, where, I, where I'd belonged. I didn't know who I was. I was still really trying to find myself. Yeah. And I'd say it's only recently that I've sort of worked out who I actually am and yeah. what I want to do and... I'm 35 now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, some people never figure it out. You know? Yeah. Um, when did the drug use start? That was around 19. So yeah. initially like finished school, drinking, partying, and then one thing led to another, led to another. And it got to the point where it was daily use of gear, you know, I was going to work, I was functioning, I was studying. So at the time, just to set the scene, there was a construction boom in Perth. I was studying construction management. So most of the guys and girls in the course could go and get a job while they were still studying mm. and they were actually making good money. Like We were yeah. making good money while we were studying because there was a demand for us. Yeah. And I was living at home. I had no real expenses aside from, you know, going out and partying. Um and yeah, I, I abused I abused it, and I got to a point in 2020. So I must have been around 21, 22 years of age, where I ended up having to go into a rehab facility and just try and get my life back in order. Sorry, what year was this? This would have been um, not 2020. Yeah. Um, I would have been 
20, 21, 22. So this is going back 13 years. So this must have been 2010-ish. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, what sort of drugs were you using? Basically coke and ecstasy yeah. were the main ones. Mm-hmm. And it was more like that nightclub sort of scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, house music just disappearing into another world. Yeah. And I like for me I enjoyed that aspect of disappearing because I wasn't happy with myself and what I was doing and I think that's why I ended up sort of going down that route mm-hmm. um, and playing with it. Yeah. And it was a really dark time and I, I feel for my parents and everyone that was surrounding me because it was a little bit touch and go. I sort of had suicidal ideation. I didn't know what I wanted to do, if I wanted to be around, what was going on. Um, but I had the support of people around me and, yeah, managed to come out the other side. So I wouldn't change what had happened. Yeah. If I could go back and change it, I'm, I'm just glad I got out the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So was it sort of like an intervention type thing with the folks around you or how did you end up uh, going to rehab? Basically, I got home from work one day and I went up to my room, which is on the second level, and laid out on my bed was all of the the gear that I'd been using that I'd sort of hidden in jackets and stuff in my wardrobe. And it was actually a guy at the gym, the trainer at the gym, that had said to my mum, hey, look, we think Jack's probably using something. You know, he's not himself. He's quite aggressive. Um, you know, you can see under his eyes, like he's, he's – you could sort of tell I wasn't yeah. healthy – and mum had actually gone through my room, looked at everything and it was all laid out and I sort of came home and I was like, whoa, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> and I went downstairs and basically my dad said to me straight off the bat, he said, unless you stop, you can fuck off. Like we mm. don't want anything to do with you anymore. Wow. And, you know, I said like this family was always really supportive of everything I wanted to do and so to hear that from him was a bit of a slap around the you know, slap around the chops and I, I basically came cold turkey off from there. And it was basically coming off cold turkey, the withdrawals, everything associated with that was when I went right off the deep end uh, and that's when I went into like a psychiatric um, facility in Perth and I spent about two weeks in there um, basically with psychiatry and psychologists and a bunch of other people that were going through different things mm. um, and, yeah, it's all a bit of a blur that time, to be honest. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. It seems like, um, you know, I'm, many people have had that moment with families before. And sometimes it, it seems like it could go the other way where the kiddo decides, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm off on the streets and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to chase that, that feeling more yeah. than, you know, deciding to try to salvage. I think that's where the power of like, having the support of yeah. parents growing up is so important because I always respected them. So to hear it from them, it was like, wow, I've got to stop now. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. What was rehab like? Um, like if I didn't know what it was like, I would say like rehab is, you know, sitting around like chained up. Like it's not a mental <laughs> asylum, you know, like it's <laughs> like when normal people we're just, you know, gone down the wrong path. And so it was stuff like talking with a counsellor but like in a group and it was obviously like I had no access to substances while I was in there and there were girls in there with anorexia, there were guys in there that had drug addictions, there was a whole, it wasn't all just sort of drug addicts in there and so I think just being around other people and actually talking about the different problems that we had, it gave it all a little bit of perspective. Mm. I was scared as hell to go in there Mm -hmm. because I... 
like similar to the first time I had to go and see a psychiatrist, I thought that meant I was crazy. Mm, interesting. <laughs> Just that word, the psychiatry, psychology, it, ah. especially as a young child, it's quite scary. Um, and then having to actually go into a facility for me was like, what? this is, it almost, the severity, severity of it all became very real. And I thought, no, I, I don't want to be in here anymore. Like it was fine to be in there. It was safe. It was a, you know, f- the environment was fine, but I don't want to go back there and I didn't want to go back there. And so I made a real effort in there to try and do everything that I could to come out the other side in a position that I could then go and live a normal life. Yep. And I was just lucky that mum and dad supported me after that. I had a boss at work who supported me. So I, you know, I wasn't working while I was in there, but I had a job when I came out wow. and... I had a whole support network around me that made my life a lot easier. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've, I don't know why, but I've always pictured it as just sort of like a, a bit of a boarding school kind of feel almost. It's kind of weird because like you go and you have your breakfast together, your mm-hmm. lunches together, your dinners together, and but you don't know anyone. And ah. it's sort of, it's kind of weird because everyone's in a pretty bad place while they're in there. Yep. So it is a bit like a boarding school, except you're not having fun and you, you don't know anyone. Yeah, everyone's yeah. pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you graduate, so to speak. Yep. And how long was the process? In the in the facility? Yeah. It's about two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and then you go back to construction work. Yeah. So it was like a slow, I slowly eased my way back into it. So over series of weeks I'd do two days a week and then I'd do three days and I didn't go straight back full time because I think then I would have probably relapsed um and it was during that time dad said hey why don't you start doing a little bit more exercise and and yeah like I said I didn't want to go out with dad because I sort of felt like he was a bit the enemy he'd sort of caught me and ah uh, interesting there's yeah. a little bit of tension there uh-huh but I went on this ride with him and that's when I really got the buggy and I was like whoa like you know racing around the river albeit against old guys in Lycra, like I love the competitive side of it. Yeah. And it sort of sparked something in me again and it gave me a bit of a focus and the focus was away from the partying and the nightlife because I, I lost a lot of my friends during that period because they perhaps continued mm. and it, I couldn't be friends with them if right. I wasn't going out. So it sort of was a divide in my life. And it forced me to sort of find new friends. And at the time it was my dad's mates. Like I was going and riding with them and having fun with them and going for coffee with them. And they were twice my age. Yeah, um, interesting. And then slowly I met, you know, people my own age and started doing my own thing on the bike and yeah. Wow. So give us a bridge between, so I think I saw, you have a great website by the way, folks should, should go check that out. But I think it was around 2018 that you really launched into doing this at a high level and yeah. committing the majority of your time to it, the bike. How did you make it to that point? How did you go from riding around with your dad's friends yeah. <laughs> and working a construction <laughs> job to being a professional cyclist and doing things that literally no one else has done? So when I started on the bike again, like I said, 100-kilometer ride, for me, it was like, all right, next week I want to do 120, then I want to do 200, and then it, I was always pushing the envelope to challenge myself. And then I'd seen there was a, a race advertised in Europe called the Transcontinental. And this became, for those that don't know, the Transcontinental was a race. It is a race that goes, well, at the time it took you from Belgium to Turkey and there were various checkpoints along the way. Uh, and it was basically the f- plan your own route for the fastest person wins. 
And for me, this was like an amazing goal. It's like, oh, I could go to Europe and I could like have a bit of a holiday while I'm riding my bike and, you know, I can push myself. And as a bit of a cowboy, I said, all right, I'm going to go and do it. And I signed up and I, and I got a position to go and do it. And I went and did it and I had no experience whatsoever. But I can still recall the first night leaving Belgium, all of the sort of taillights flashing at nighttime and then everyone sort of goes their own way. Mm. This sense of, wow, like, this is really living, like I feel mm -hmm. alive. Mm -hmm. And I spent the next it was 10 or 11 days or something, um, you know, absolutely battling my way around Europe, no idea what I was doing. And I finished in Turkey and my dad had flown over to meet me. He'd been sort of following along as a, as a dot watcher. Yeah. And anyway, we spent two days in Turkey. I was absolutely knackered. And he said to me, look, well, you know, how do you feel about going back to work? <laughs> and I said, well, it's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> like I've had such a good time here. And he said to me, he said, well, why are you going back to work? Huh. I said, well, <laughs> we, did, we need to work, don't we? <laughs> and he said, if you don't enjoy it, you shouldn't do it. And that was like this light bulb moment of, oh, maybe I can make a career out of riding a bike. Hmm. And so when I got back to work, the first day back, I said to my boss, all right, I'm going to hand in my notice I don't want to work anymore I'm going to become a professional cyclist <laughs> and this is like two years after coming you know not long after coming out of rehab and he sort of looked at me a bit funny and yeah, you know, I, I did two weeks of work and then I left and then it was like how am I going to make money and I was lucky a position came up it was on Facebook of um, cyclist magazine was looking for somebody to go to Thailand and basically spend five days in Thailand uh, and basically produce an article around cycling in Thailand. And mm. so I, I said, yeah, I want to go and do it. And I got the opportunity to go and do it. Uh. And then I saw this unique area of like cycling and tourism and, you know, then pitching to different tourism boards, you know, I'm going to come to Indonesia and I'm going to ride there and I'm going to produce an article and all you've got to do is cover my costs. And that, I started doing that and at the same time I was, you know, working a few odd jobs at home and trying to make ends meet. And through doing these sort of tourism trips, I realised, oh, wow, maybe I can ask for some sponsorship from different brands because I'm getting articles in some magazines and on websites. And so I started sending out the emails to, to little brands and I got a couple of little brands on board and, you know, this is all over the course of a couple of years. And then... It was actually, I had this idea of, wow, I want to do something extreme. I was like, what could I do? And I was brainstorming with a mate back in Perth and it was, it was middle of the year so the sort of season in Europe was finished and we were like, wow, how could we do something and take advantage of existing media so that we don't, we don't have the budget to, to do anything but how can we sort of try and get on the bandwagon with some media? Mm -hmm. And there was the Taiwan KOM event. Oh, yeah. And we're like, yeah. oh, maybe we could go to Taiwan and do this KOM. And I'd done a little bit with tourism in Taiwan before, so I reached out and said I wanted to come, and they were like, yeah, it sounds Quickly good. Quickly describe what that event is for folks. So it's a, it's a hill climb event, and it's basically a climb that's, I think it's 80-odd kilometres in length that takes you from sea level up to around 3,400 metres. It's one of the longest climbs in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And we said, all right, let's go and do that. And I was like, no, oh, but it needs to be different. I don't just want to go and do the event because there's hundreds of people that do it. I said, well, maybe I'm going to do it four times nonstop. <laughs> and we'll do it like three times before the race and then we'll do it with the race. And then hopefully, because I've done that, there'll be media that'll talk about it a little bit. Huh, interesting. 
And so I got my dad, I got my mate and I got a, who's a photographer and another mate who had just started film, filmmaking. He was 17 or something at the time. And I said, look, I'll pay for all your flights. You've just got to come over here and document it and we'll try and put something together. And we went over there and we put this little film together and it was quite a success. And at the time there wasn't a lot of this happening in the cycling world. So it got a bit of traction. When, what year was this? Um, this was 2016. Oh yeah. You were way ahead of the curve. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) And, um, yeah, to begin with on YouTube, it wasn't doing very well. And then suddenly the views started going like skyrocketing. I remember I was just like updating the feed and it was just going up and up and up. And this is like sort of back before the, like in the scheme of things, it wasn't a lot of views, but for me, it seemed, you know, a hundred thousand views. This is fucking bonkers. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and then off the back of that, I started approaching some brands and trying to put a bit of structure around, all right, I want to go and do a couple of extreme things in a year, Mm. document them and in return, like provide content and, Um, yeah, this is almost the beginning of the whole content game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it sort of just grew from there. Huh. And it's, yeah, it's been, I don't know, seven years now yeah. doing it. And it's, it's obviously the landscape's changed a little bit. And I'm, I'm sort of doing things a little bit differently because it, it's all well and good going and doing extreme things, but you have to make a, like a salary out of it. You have to make, you can't just do it for nothing. Yep. And so that sort of shaped things a little bit. But essentially, yeah, it's where we're at now doing a couple of extreme events a year and putting them, a film around them and trying to engage with different brands and communities and trying to make a project out of it, a social impact style project. Yeah. How did you, I'm still stuck on the Taiwan KOM here for a second. How did you arrive at four? That's a good question. <laughs> I think I just thought, oh, four sounds extreme. Like we were <laughs> literally just sitting over <laughs> having a coffee. And I was like, four times. Yeah. And he was, oh, and I was like, yeah, four it is, you know. Like, What's the elevate? What was the elevation gain on that? Do you remember? Um, I think the total elevation over the four climbs, it would have been around fourteen, fifteen thousand meters. Jeez, so almost triple Everest, double, Everest. almost a double, double Everest. Yeah. Did you was an Everesting even a thing that you knew um, of at that time? I was probably aware of it, but I didn't have Strava at the time. Right. Like I, I, did, I, I was always against it. I was like, oh, no, I just want to be like the, the loner that's going and doing it. And then somebody's like, oh, that's the guy that went and did it. And sort yeah. of just trying to sort of be on the fringe a little bit. Yeah, interesting. And then I sort of fall, yeah, I've got Strava now. Yeah, and of course. It's quite valuable having it. And it is. Showing people what you're doing. There's and nothing like massive numbers that that's no one else it. has done. <laughs> <laughs> um. Wow. But we were well, full cowboys. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It was, what was it like to quote unquote race the fourth time up? Did you, oh. were you DFL? <laughs> I just remember like, there was Gumby's going past me like I was hardly moving. Yeah. But in my mind, I was like, as soon as we hit like a certain point, they're going to be coming backwards because they've gone out way too hard. Yeah. And like the elevation starts to kick in. And it's that sort of happened. So to begin with, I was quite embarrassed. Like, well, you know, there's people going past me. I'm nowhere to be seen. And then towards the top, I just started slowly catching and catching and catching. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, arriving at the top was amazing because we sort of achieved that first goal we wanted to achieve. And, you know, my dad was there and my mates yeah. were there. And then we had a couple of days in Taiwan just soaking it all up. And it was, yeah, I'd like to do more of that sort of, it was just off the bat, you know, like we just went and did it. There was no real planning involved. It was like, that's a cool idea. Let's just go and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So when you think back on that first one, is it the same sort of thing that you were describing with your 100, 100 kilometer rides before work where checking off for a sense was like the, the big dopamine hit? Yeah. Or did some of the adventure component start to seep in and, and you felt value in kind of the shared experience of having your dad there and having your buddies there and being in a foreign land and, and discovering a new place? How, how much value did that component have for you? That probably sunk in more so afterwards when, we, when we'd actually finished. And that's when I realized, like, I, I can't just do these things for the end result. It's got to be for the whole process. And, like, to actually get to travel with my dad and do these things is super cool. And then to have two mates with me in a foreign country staying in weird hotels is also yeah. super cool. Yeah. And, but that's been a bit of a process realizing that I need to enjoy that. I am a little bit like driven by like I just need to do that and then that and then that and I often forget about mm, the process or the, all the stuff that happens in between and that's something that I'm still working on trying to be a little bit more wholesome with it. It's not necessarily about the end result. It's about getting there and, you know, making sure it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, I mean, I, I want to in a minute talk about some of the other big extreme challenges you've done. But have there been any where you came up short or they just fell apart for one reason or another? And what was that like as someone who has the, the psychology that you do? Yeah, I had touch wood. I've been quite lucky. Like I haven't had many fall short. I had one in Tasmania actually. Really? Yeah. Huh. My uncle was living in Tasmania and I had this idea. I wanted to go and do like a bit of a figure eight around, around the island. And well, um, Low-key things. <laughs> I took a road bike and I was doing it on like 25 mil tires and it was wet and, you know, it's cold, it gets cold in Tassie. Yeah. And on, on day one I had like six or seven punctures, like I was using mm. the, the sticky repair things and it just all fell to bits and my phone got waterlogged and it just, yeah. it didn't go to plan. And I remember then that was, that was almost like the realisation that it, it can't just be about the end goal. It has to be about everything that leads up to it. The time with my uncle, staying at his, you know, vintage house, like the the travel over there and, you know, the people I meet on the plane, like it's all – it's not – it sounds corny. It's not the – I forget the, the term. It's not the end result. It's the journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like that's corny but it's it's true. Yeah, yeah. So what is one of these that you hold dearest just in terms of – the, like this was one of the th challenges that I'm most proud of. Like when I am, am looking back on the sunset of my career, my athletic career, you know, not necessarily the one that got the most views or yeah. the one that people bring up when they run into you at a coffee shop, but one that you really hold dearly for one reason. Or for another. me, like without a doubt, it was in 2022, the 52 Everests, million meters. Yeah like a year long project because it was so fucking hard. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, let's just talk about brutal. it. So how did you arrive at those other than them being <laughs> very nice, obvious round numbers? At what point did you start thinking about putting together um, a year long so let's, challenge? Let's, there wasn't a lot of thought that went into it. So I'll set the scene. I was okay. in Portugal yeah, and my, I had this idea for a project in 2022 that I wanted to do 
um, basically in Everest and each of the municipalities of Portugal and use it as like a way of promoting Portugal as a, as a cycling destination. Mm-hmm. And that fell through. And we were in Portugal at the time and I was thinking, like, what am I going to do? I've got this whole year free now. And I literally like on the back of a little bit of paper, I started like doing some notes and I was like a million metres. And then I broke that down into 52. How much would that be in a week? And I was like, oh, it's 20,000 metres a week. But then it, an Everest would be half of that almost. So I was like, all right, an Everest every week gives me roughly half of a million metres. And then I need to make up the rest of the metres elsewhere. And it was that quick. I called my dad and I was like, all right, I'm going to do a million metres and 52 Everest in a year. And he was like, well, have you thought that through? I was like, yeah, yeah it's happening. <laughs> I did it on a napkin, trust me. Yeah. And I kid you not, the first week I started, I did it. And I was doing the calculations and I was like, Ooh, I've done the calculations wrong, I'm short. No way. So the first week I was 2,000 metres behind and I was like, oh, this is going to be serious now. Wow. And, yeah, the year began and it was just like this war of attrition, like trying not to get injured, trying not to get sick, trying to think of a new climb to Everest because my own goal was to do a different climb every time trying to work out, you know, the weather's shitty here, how am I going to get there and not lose, you know, it was just this mind game for a whole year. Um, and obviously I was getting more and more tired as the year went on. And I also set myself this goal of trying to raise a million dollars for charity, which became almost more of a stress than the riding because I wasn't getting close to the figure. Hmm. And then I felt like I was letting people down and I was, it was this oh wow constant sort of, you know, mind fuck. Wow. Um, yeah, amazing year. Like super cool to have achieved it. Would I ever do a year project again? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> no way. So, okay, it sounds like like you came into a little bit by the seat of your pants. Um, started off behind, which yeah. is wild. That's crazy. How, how did the logistics of it all work? Did you start here in Spain? Yeah. So I was here. I did most of it in Spain from okay. Girona. And basically Man, I had a I, weekly... I, sorry to interrupt, but I am so regretting that I was not more plugged into your stuff at this point and following real time. Uh, no this worries. would have been unreal to follow <laughs> throughout the year. To be honest, it probably would have got boring because like every week was like a repeat of the week before, a repeat of the week before, and I'm just looking more haggard and more haggard every time a photo goes up. Yeah. But it was like I just broke, like everything I do, I just break it into a manageable chunk. So I said, all right, Friday is going to be the day that I Everest. So every Friday it was an Everest. That is such an insane thing to say, dude. (laughs) Like what you just said is unreal. Yeah. Just because weekly Everest, okay, that it sounds crazy, but then when you – you put a day on it. Like, this is what I do with my Friday. Some yeah. people have Friday pizza night. You have Friday Everesting day. I had Friday pizza night as well, but I had four <laughs> or five pizzas. <laughs> so oh like a typical week is like Monday was a bit of a recovery day, 1,500 meters. <laughs> Tuesday. Which for, for, for the silly Americans listening is 4,500 feet, a little more. Tuesday, two and a half thousand meters. And that was typically eight repeats on the back of L's. Eight yeah. repeats on the back of L's. Yeah. Oh my God. Wednesday, 
uh, was another 2,500 meters, and that was typically three Rocco Corbas. So I what, <laughs> dude? Okay, so I did Rocco Corva for the first. I'm gonna keep interrupting because I have context <laughs> for all this now. Rocco Corva sucks, and I think it's part hard. part of it is the time of year. Like it was just oh, it's slippery now, wet on. and dicey, and I was like, I'm I'm good on that. I'm not gonna keep doing that. But it is steep, yeah, and it's such a fake news climb where. The average grade on Strava says, I think, 8%. Yeah, it's more. It has two descents in it. Yeah, for sure. It's fucking hard. It's like 12 to 16% during the actual climbing parts. And it's not like tarmac. It's like, you know, it's like those concrete blocks and then it's sketchy corners and slow. But for me, mentally, I could break that down. I've just got to go up three times and then my day's done. Mm, And so I typically ride out. Uh, it's typically drive out because I didn't want to be doing junk stuff and I'd just ride it three times. Then I'd get in the car, come home via the gas station and it was always a Magnum, a little like iced coffee and like a couple of Snickers or yeah. Twix. Like, that was just my reward. Yeah. Um, so that's the typical Wednesday. Then Thursday was like getting ready for Everest, 1,500 meters. And that was almost like, a re- again, a recovery loop. Friday, Everest day and... It's like, where am I going to Everest? So sometimes on a Thursday night, I'd drive for an hour to the base of a climb and stay in a little Airbnb or a, like it was a logistical absolute nightmare because I wanted to do it on a different climb. Bless, so bless your fiance, man. <laughs> I'm so lucky she's still with me. <laughs> oh, this is crazy. Uh, and then Saturday again was like a recovery day, 1500 meters after the Everest but I typically try and get a little bit more. So I knew if I got around 1,800 at the end of the year, I'd be able to, if I did that consistently for a number of weeks, I'd suddenly be knocking days off it. So it was like 1,800 metres on a Saturday and then lights out Saturday afternoon, right off Sunday, absolute right off. And I was probably the grumpiest bloke in Europe, I reckon. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Can you, what is the meters per week breakdown to to knock off a million in a year 20,000 meters every week so that's over 60,000 feet of climbing per week yeah wow and I had one week off in the middle of the year because I was cooked and I'd actually built up a bit of a surplus so I'd with my coach at the time we said look I've got this surplus (laughs) your coach your poor oh my I forgot about (laughs) there's probably a coach involved with this there wasn't a lot of input from him that year other than like <laughs> how are you alive the tss weekly like the average was 1600 oh my god which was what did your ctl get to uh is this i forget the seat the fitness yeah that's a chronic was 250 what that's sort of where it peaked out i have never heard of such a thing but i think that's just like i'm not a big training peaks science guy. So I don't really understand the science. I think that's just because like I wasn't resting. It was just always load after load after I load. Know. It has to be like yeah. to, to, to get 65,000 feet of climbing per week. I mean, you have to just like, there, there is no bouncing back yeah. at that point. What was it like to take a week off? What did your body do? That was the risk. Hey, because my coach was like, yeah. either you're going to get sick in this week or you're going to be okay, but the following week you're going to suffer. And luckily I didn't get sick, but the following week it was a mental battle because it's like, ah, oh, 
I've just had a week off and now it's finding that rhythm again and telling yourself you've got to do it 26 more times. And that was like, I can't even think of 26 more climbs that I want to Everest. Like Mm -hmm. the list was done after week five. Like I had five climbs that I wanted to do and then it became like every Thursday night scrambling around on Kamut. Like where am I going to do one? Oh, is there a hotel there? Oh, yeah, I'll book it and... You know, pack the eskies, take all the stuff, and I'd just go and do them alone. And I'd have two eskies, and I knew exactly what I had to eat at what time. Like I had it down to an absolute T. There was never any leftover food. There was never any anything I didn't eat. It was just like I'm going to work, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to get home. And it was like I had to be like that, otherwise it would have just been too much. Wow. Did you? What was the percentage of enjoyment to just like this is my lot in life? And I signed myself up and I'm counting down the days. The enjoyable days were like the 1500 meter days. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, and even still now, I if I go that. and do 1500 meters, I'm like, whoa, like, fuck, I was doing that as like an easy day. And it was, but I, I got the enjoyment out of, again, ticking the box of there's another session completed. I'm working towards the end goal. And you're probably getting this sense that like, I'm a big box like I love to just tick the box I love the routine I love to just work through it slowly yeah I got a lot of satisfaction out of that and then you know there was so many cool memories of like different climbs I didn't know existed people who came and joined me um conversations I had with people in the middle of nowhere that were asking what I was doing and (laughs) like it was a uh, I did a lot of it here but it felt like the whole year was an adventure like of emotions of of everything yeah how close did you get to quitting i didn't get close eh? like i was just so focused on doing it that i like that wasn't an option so i got about three weeks from the finish and it was obviously getting cold here and we're like all right let's go to tenerife for a week and i'm gonna do so it got to the point where because i had some travel planned i needed to do well i had travel planned and i had also worked out that maybe doing two everest in a week was easier then doing one Everest a week and lots of kilometers around it. Interesting. So yeah. by doing two in a week, I was knocking off, say, 17,000 um, meters in two days. And then I only had to do like a 3,000 meter day and the week was done. Mm-hmm. And so I said, let's go to Tenerife, warm weather. I'm just going to knock off a heap of Everests. So we did. <laughs> <laughs> so many one liners. <laughs> just knock off a heap of Everests. <laughs> two weeks, four Everests on the island. But when I got there, I had this issue going on with my knee and I'd had oh, no I'm issues shocked. at all. <laughs> How strange. <laughs> it's telling me no. <laughs> I couldn't walk. Like it was like my kneecap was like locked. Oh, wow. And like I, I didn't want to say anything to anyone. I was keeping it real. Like this is my thing. I've got to deal with it because you know what social media is like. You just people don't need to know this stuff. There's weirdly so many doctors in the comments that come out of nowhere. <laughs> it's, it's shocking Stop every time. Google. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, so I'd, I started this Everest and I was like, I can't finish it. Like, I can't even get up the climb. Like, my knee is so sore. Mm. And I was like, it's got to be coming from something. Like, it's, I've got to work out what's causing it. And anyway, I started, like, massaging the, um, the VMO and, like, really getting, like, into the kneecap and, like, pushing the kneecap. And I think what had happened, the kneecap had just got, like, stuck and it wasn't moving and I needed to, like, loosen up all the muscles around it. And it eventually started moving and I got through an Everest with it. Dude. And then I went ham on the massage, like, you know, 
you asked Mary, like I was on this all day, every day, like freeing up the knee and like it came good. And like that was the what? closest I came to sort of stumbling with it all. Um, I got sick one week, but I, you know, I made a plan to sort of make up the stuff that I'd lost. And yeah, it like I still can't believe that I, I did it. Like wow. I don't know if I could do it again. And also to to be fair, you you mentioned that coming up short on your fundraising goal was a a tough thing mentally. But I mean, you still raised over five hundred k, right? Yeah, unreal, man. Yeah, thanks. Half a million dollars is just unreal. What were the organizations that you were fundraising for? So one was Outride, the yeah, of the course. charity link with Specialized, yeah. um, Kids Helpline in Australia, which is a, basically a call line that kids can call, and um, there's always somebody there to listen. And then an African charity, Make Strong Minds, which was basically a, it's a scalable charity where um, the women actually get education on how to how to mentor somebody else, so that then mm. within the community there's an ability for people to sort of mentor and um, and help others. And yeah, like like yeah, but it was a disappointment, and that was something that was out of my control. And I think that's why I struggled with it. Uh-huh. The riding I could control, yeah. and like I could go out and I could ride for three hours more and do a little bit extra. But the fundraising, I, I, I couldn't. And I, there was a limit to how much I could say, hey, hey, like I need your money, like it's for a good cause. Yeah. And I just sort of had to like put that aside. It is what it is. Anything we raise is great. And just Does concentrate it still on what bother I could you? do. Not anymore, but for yeah. a long time it did. Yeah. For a good, for that whole, most of that year it did because I always felt like I was behind. And then when I finished, I was like, half a million dollars is still massive. Yeah, like, man. And it, it's just so. Interesting too, because if you had just, I don't know how the, those finances were at what point they got distributed. Yeah. But if you just had one recipient come and meet you face to face and, yeah. and put some humanity behind, you know, what you'd done with yeah. your numbers based goals, I bet that would have made any frustration melt away pretty quickly. Yeah. 500 K. I can't imagine how far that's gone. That's the really one learning amazing. we did get from it as far as charity goes is perhaps choosing three charities was a mistake. Mm. If we'd chosen one, yeah. it perhaps would have been easier. Brand brand is a strong thing. Yeah. yeah. A united sort of, yeah. But then mm-hmm. having three around the world, some were more sort of willing to promote it than others. Uh-huh. It sort of lost, but hey, I'm not, I'm not sour. It is what it is. Yeah. We, yeah, <laughs> we couldn't have done more. <laughs> that's incredible, man. That is so cool. Um, did you have a favorite climb? You know, I had, there's a couple, but not because they were amazing climbs. So there was one I actually did in the States in, Mm. um, Mill Valley. Yeah. In close to San Fran. One of my favorite places to ride. Yeah. Super pretty spot. It was like a residential road. It was amazing because I got to know everyone on that road. <laughs> like people would come out, they were bringing me like food, they were yeah. like cheering, like, and that was cool because it was a vibe. Yeah. Do you remember the name of the climb? Um, the I don't. Uh, I could, no, nah, not off the top of my head. If I had a map, I could find it. Yeah. But like proper just residential, I think it was like 100 meters up, 100 meters down, Ooh, 88 a lot of repeat sort of jobby. Yeah. Um, that was great. And then I did like some locally here on climbs that I just didn't know existed. Mm, like and what? Was, so there was, there's a couple near Rocker Corba. There's a couple of great little climbs that are just sort of goat tracks that go up. Uh, I don't even know if they've got a name. Um, 
difficult steep jobbies <laughs> yeah. um, things that get you vert quickly <laughs> yeah i did one in london so i traveled to london and did one like residentially in london huh. don't know if it was my favorite but it was cool because like being in london doing one like not the sort of place you'd think you could do an everest yeah uh, and then tenerife for me is like that's paradise tenerife is such an amazing spot the the climbs the climate the people like as an Aussie growing up going to Bali, mm. for me, like Tenerife is like Bali for Spain. It's oh, just cool. like untapped. Yeah, wow. Man, we could talk for a while. I've got so many follow-up questions. This is cool. Did you do uh, – I'm still not quite to the point where I get all of the syllables correct. Was it Mar de um, Del Monte? Mar de Del Monte? Yeah. Did that one, yeah. Did you? So we did that one quite early. It would have been probably week four of the year. Um, so for those listening, Matadero del Monte's like one of the famous climbs in the Girona region. It's how high is it? Seventeen hundred meters. Uh, I think it's a bit lower. A bit lower, okay. but it's it's an orange category climb for sure. Yeah, it's over it's over a thousand meters uh, from bottom to top. But I'm not sure what the summit is. Okay, spectacular climb though. Like Beautiful. the vistas are amazing, and I feel like you go through different landscapes as you climb it, and you get to the top, and you're sort of on the moon. And then you get down, you're in the forest. Yeah. And the, so it was cold when we did it because it would have been January, Feb. Um, but there was it was a season where all the little um, the caterpillars were crossing the oh, road. Oh, yeah, in their trains? Yeah. Oh, cool. And at the time I thought, oh, this is super cool. And then I realized that I was allergic to the caterpillars. No way. So like they were flicking up off the wheels, obviously, because you yeah. can't not run over them. And I was just like so itchy. My legs and everything was so itchy. And then somebody said, oh, yeah, some people are allergic to them. And I, was like, <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> what? But, oh yeah, that climb God. was amazing. So were you were you doing the full like hour-ish long version? Uh, yeah. Where you cross that main highway? Because the bottom is pretty gradual. It's definitely uh, not the most efficient. So the, there's the two ways you can go up it. Yeah. One is the really small little tight one. That's yep. the one I okay, – that's yeah. the way I went up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that must have taken a while because descending yeah. that thing, you almost have to come to a track stand, some of the switchbacks Super are tight, so tight. Hey? Yeah. yeah. And when it's cold, like it gets a bit icy there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great climb early on though. So I didn't say anything to anyone that I was doing it for about two or three months. I was okay. just sort of logging them. They were going on Strava like Everest 10 uh, and no one oh, knew what was going interesting. on. And I thought, oh, it'll build a bit of hype. Yeah. And then, so at that time, nobody knew what was going on. So nobody came out and saw. Yeah. But then it was cool as like I started to announce, oh, next week I'm going to do, um, I don't know, St. Grau or, you know, yeah. golf course climb down at the beach. And yeah. 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 Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. So obviously you get huge satisfaction. I, I've, I feel like we're broken record here, but checking that big accomplishment off the list. But even so, was it weird to be done? Like, did you have a little bit of a withdrawal period that was challenging? Definitely, yeah. I I struggled stopping that because it had been like a year of doing it. Yeah. And I was back in Australia when I finished, so it was like summer. I had the beach there. And I decided I was going to just have a full month of not touching the bike. And that was weird in itself yeah. because I'd just become so accustomed to being on it. Yeah. Um, and I actually put on a lot of weight up. I say a lot of weight. I put on like seven or eight kilos after that just because I was still so hungry all the time and I was yeah. still eating the same amount. Yeah. 
and it took a real concerted effort last year to to rein that in a little bit and <laughs> say look you can't eat that much food anymore <laughs> because you're not doing that many hours on the bike yeah um yeah there's definitely like the post-event blues uh that i struggled with but for me that's where like the hobby of say like surfing yeah. is something that's completely different from bike riding but it's something that is like meditation again for me and because i'm not doing it all the time anymore here in spain like i'm a bit of a rookie at it and so it's like a learning process again and it's different and it's fun because there's like other toys to look at and play with and yeah that takes my mind off it yeah and i found that's really powerful having like a hobby yeah so i'm glad you reminded me about the surfing i think this is really interesting so for one it's not as common for really elite level cyclists to have uh, another sport that they enjoy dedicating time to. Um, but I think it's especially interesting that it's so different. I have a couple of friends that uh, really enjoy surfing and, and are high level bike riders, but it's not super common, I don't think. And um, especially learning about you and how much you enjoy kind of controlling the process and, and chasing these different benchmarks, surfing seems almost polar opposite to that in some ways, you know, it's just, yeah. it's so free form. You're completely at the whim of whatever break is happening, whatever yeah. swell is coming in. Uh, sometimes you're just sitting out there on your board for ages, just waiting yeah. for something to come in. So it kind of, in a way it surprises me that you gravitate towards it. I think it, like, because it's the opposite, I almost enjoy it. I think like for two reasons, like the cycling was the hobby and then it turned into the work. Uh -huh. And because of that, I sometimes feel like I need to escape it, which was one of the, like we said, one of the reasons I left Girona was because I, I needed something else. Like I didn't necessarily always want to be about bikes. And it wasn't because we wanted to move to the coast so that we could surf. It was that separation. And so for me, having the separation, and I've only recently realized how important it is um, having the separation is really good for my mental health and something completely different. Yeah. And the surfing is completely different. Like you said, like you might be sitting there waiting for a wave. There might not be any surf, you know, you, a wave might come and you might kook it on the takeoff. Yeah. And like you're just a beginner. And I think being the beginner again, there's something fun in that. I look back to when I first started cycling and it was fun because like you were getting to know it and you were getting to work out what you were good at and what you weren't so good at and what you could train for. I like that aspect of surfing. It's like, oh, like how do you do this better? Or where, when is there going to be a good swell and what break and, you know, where is it going to break? And yeah. it's different. And yeah. I love that it's different. That's cool. What is the surfing like down there? Because you don't, we were talking about this before we started recording, you know, you don't hear about it as like a, a surf destination per se, northern, northern yeah. Mediterranean coast of northern Spain. It only really breaks in winter when there's like a big winter swell. Okay. And like sometimes there'll be a knee-high wave breaking, sometimes there'll be a chest-high wave breaking. I went down last year when there was a big winter swell and I kid you not, like it would have been triple overhead. Like you couldn't oh. surf it, like just big wow. storm waves. Yeah. But like I've never seen the coast here like that before. And so you definitely do get surf, but it's just picking where you surf depending on the conditions. And I think having a wetsuit that's thick enough yeah. to keep you warm in winter because yeah, it's, it's cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And at what point did you decide to move here? What? How did you make the leap? Because it's pretty common, almost rite of passage for 
road cyclists, professional road cyclists and cross country mountain bikers too, increasingly gravel now. Yeah. Um, but obviously you you were kind of doing your own thing. So what drew you to this place? So we did a, I'd actually been to Girona once before in 2013, 2014, just sort of when I got that bug of cycling again. And I went and did a race in Belgium, a series of Kermises in Belgium with a few mates. And we thought, oh, let's come to Girona. Like this is a bit of a hot spot. And at the time it was, it was sort of big, but it wasn't like it is now. And I came and to be honest, I didn't really enjoy it. I was sort of by myself. My mates had gone home and I was sort of, you know, frolicking about trying to make friends i didn't speak the language and it was difficult yeah and then fast forward a couple of years we'd actually done a project where we'd finished in andorra where it was this three everest three countries three days and we finished in andorra and we said hey Girona's just there like why don't we go to Girona again and so we came here and i was like whoa like you know the cycling was sort of more a, a passion for me at this stage like i wanted to make a career of it and i was conscious that living in perth probably wasn't the opportunities in Perth to make a career of it. You're always dealing with the Australian component of a brand or yeah. you're always seen as being a long way away. Yep. And I'm lucky because I've got an Irish passport so I didn't have visa issues. Huh. And I just said, hey, I'm, I'm going to take a lease on a place for six months and just see what happens and did it. And the rest is kind of history. Like it's yeah. been four years now. Yeah, cool, cool. Interesting. Um, sorry, you mentioning Andorra just sent my mind on a, a little bit of a tangent. Did you do any Everests in Andorra, like as part of your year long? No, I didn't. No, okay. So I was a bit phobic that the altitude would cook me. Yeah, fair, fair. Yeah. yeah. And then the idea of like traveling to Andorra and yeah. I was just having that like safe space here was really valuable. Like I knew where I could get the food. I know where I could sleep. I knew where I could do everything and like, I'm a sucker for routine. Yeah. So like Girona was where it was happening. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. But, but I should have gone in like in summer when it was hot here. It would have been amazing up in Andorra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, uh, you did do an Everesting there at one point. I did. Yeah, we did one back in I think it was 2016. Yeah. Do you remember what climb you did there? En Valera. So in we Valera. literally went through the middle of town all the way up to the top and okay. just did that climb. Oh, interesting. It was a shocker, just busy roads, yeah. traffic. It was probably the worst climb you could ever risk there. That's funny. But we, we got it done. Yeah, yeah. I think I may go there for a little mini camp. Um, yeah, cool. Later this week, which is why I'm kind of curious. Um, cool, man. How, what's your comfort level talking about some of what you're going to get up to this year? Do you want to keep that kind of on the back burner? And I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. 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 Um, so obviously 2022 was a huge year at this point in your life. How do you go about choosing what you want to tackle next? Cause I'm sure you have no shortage of ideas. Yeah. Um, we talked again, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but what's the decision-making process like of, of what you want to do, how you plan your year. Uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what you're planning to do this year. Yeah. It's a good point because like you said, there's, hundreds of things you can go and do and like it's limitless what you could go and do but it's like at the end of the day it's a job it's a profession and it needs to you know you need to generate an income you need to keep sponsors happy like there's a you know it doesn't just you don't just get to go and do all this stuff for free yeah and so I'm always thinking all right how can I 
pick a project where look, I'm going to get a buzz out of it. I think there's a record that could be broken in the process and I could tie it in with sponsors and and more importantly, like I can actually make an impact in the area that we're doing it in, whether that's through media or PR or so it's almost like, all right, there's a project. Does it tick box one, two, three, four? No. All right, that one gets scrapped for now. And then it's trying to find the projects where you can actually tick all of the boxes and get the funding to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I learned in 2022 that biting off more than you can chew might make for a cool story, but it's not sustainable. Yeah. And I'm 35, like I'm not 25. And I also realized that I can't do this forever. So it's trying to work out ways that I can do stuff that's sustainable so that I can continue doing it. I'm not beat up for months and months afterwards and still sort of have fun and tick all those boxes along the way. So we've come up with a couple of cool projects for 2024. Um, One of them locally here in Spain, uh, Camino de Santiago uh, FKT, which is the distance is 767 kilometres um and the current record is around 24 hours so that one it's like sort of need everything to go to plan weather wise and so you know you sort of can't set a date it has to be like a yeah. period and then you have to work look at the weather forecasts and um what is that route so it's basically <clears throat> you have to forgive me the names of the towns in spanish i don't remember but it basically crosses from the far northwest of spain across spain to the east and Got it's it. the sort of religious, uh, w- typically a walking route, but the actual record is set on the roads as opposed to on the walking trail. So you said the northwestern... So like Galicia. Okay. Across sort of towards San Sebastian. Gotcha. Interesting. That's a big one. Have you ever thought about... And I'm. I, there was a period of time where I like to keep these things a little bit closer to my chest, but I just don't. I know what you mean, because otherwise you feel, oh, someone else is going to do it. Yeah, and they, <laughs> but you come to appreciate just how much is involved in, in doing them. Um, and also my with the little, I'm going to use the word little, because compared to some of what you do, the, the things that I'm enjoying tacking onto my year at the end of a race season, whether it be like Iceland or Tasmania, they're smaller than what you're doing uh geographically um i'm at a point where i don't want to feel competitive about them yeah i just want to do them more as an experiential thing yeah so one that the the one that's sort of hanging over me that is a long-term goal that just one day i want to do and i don't know exactly how we would route it i want i would want to kind of punch straight through the pyrenees um, is an Atlantic to the Mediterranean, just punch straight through the mountain range. Like a Trans-Pyrenees. Trans-Pyrenees style San thing. San Sebastian to Catechez sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Rosas, Catechez, whatever. I mean, you could even, because Girona is the way it is, you yeah. could even roll through Girona's like a last yeah, yeah, yeah. rod, head to the coast. Um, and you can't really do it under 400 miles or... I don't know how many Ks that is, 700 something Ks. And would you do it on the road or off-road? I That's where it starts to get, that's where I need to do a lot more exploring and, yeah. and just, because I would, wa- I would want to do it where I kind of check off as many of the big famous climbs as I could. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. Tourmalet, whatever. All, yeah. the, all the famous big climbs. And then also 
you know, as you're rolling through Andorra, for example, maybe there's some just massive dirt road climb yeah. that, that you just want to hit. Point is, it would be an absolutely enormous bike ride. Um, and the I have mapped a couple of options and the elevation gain just gets really silly really massive. quickly because you're obviously <laughs> just punching straight through the Pyrenees. No way, no way to avoid that. But have you have you thought about doing something like that on the road? Not that one, to be honest. I know there's the route, the trans, I think it's a race, the Trans-Pyrenees race. Yep. Um, but the, it's not, I don't think it's a, like, no one tries to single push it. It's okay. like a stage thing, I think. Okay. I think. I could be wrong. I've not looked at it, to be honest. Yeah. If you can to do it, we could do it like a partnership. Dude, <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> or even like a... Because I'm so frequently drawn to the off-road side of things. Do you get yeah. off-road as much? A little bit. Like yeah. I'm trying to, where we are now, there's pretty good off-road. So yeah, yeah, I'm doing more. But I just I always look because if you're if you're like me, you'll appreciate this. I'm just looking at maps constantly. Yeah. And sometimes you, your eye just keeps going back to one place, and just there's something about the way those two coastlines kind of pinch together a little yeah, bit yeah, at yeah. the borders of of Spain and France. It just seems like it's it's calling to be ridden across. There's definitely a cool story to tell across there, I reckon. Yeah. I, I think you could, yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about, that was a tangent, but let's talk about some of the the other ones that you have on your so list. So that's one. That's the FKT. And then Japan North to South record. Which is huge. Yeah, that's quite a big one. So that's two and a half thousand kilometers. Yeah. Um, current record's about five days. Just over five days by a Japanese guy holds that record, uh, and like I've rid- I've actually ridden north to south of Japan before. I did a bike packing trip with my dad, and we had like an amazing time doing it. We did it over three weeks, not over five days. And I remember like Japan is amazing, but it can be very chaotic. Yeah, big cities, lots of people. So I think the challenge isn't necessarily riding as hard as you can for five days it's like picking the route like is there a set route like we spoke about before is there a way to you know route around tokyo that you might you know might be 100 kilometers more but you save a lot more like there's a whole lot of logistics to go into that one uh and then like how how do we get like a cool japanese like an asahi or somebody on board to actually help it be more than just you know, a fringe athlete coming and doing something yeah. that you know nobody really cares about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that we haven't really discussed is that you're so you with these uh, big challenges, you're very, very performance driven with them, and so they're uh, supported efforts. Yeah. It's not because uh, in the states, obviously, and and I guess globally, that's a dumb thing to say. Bikepacking is very much a global thing. But I feel like culturally there's sometimes this thing in the States where there's this very strong like self-reliance sort of ethos yeah. and do it self-supported and like this is it's this core way of of doing ultra cycling. Yeah. Um, and you have this different approach where you're just kind of going for maximum efficiency, maximum speed. And so there's a whole other level of planning required. Yeah. I like. think like it it's often well. I think they both have their um, pros and cons, like the supported versus the unsupported. Yep. For me, the reason I do, I prefer the sort of un, the supported stuff is like sharing it with a team. Totally. And like you. it's 
the, I never say it's like I broke the record. I say we broke the record because without, you know, the guy driving the car, like we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have shot the film without somebody being there following it. 100%. And I like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't have a massive group of friends, but I've got like a group of close friends that if I can go and share something with, that's pretty valuable to me. And that's why I've you know, decided like that's the route I want to go on. Like I don't necessarily want to be alone for days on end. Like I want to be able to have some fun along the way and talk shit. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean still to this day one of my favorite, favorite all-time cycling quotes is Lachlan during his alt tour where he just says, I'm not doing a loneliness contest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, you know, yeah. we don't need to be alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. All right, man, we should get this wrapped up. Um the last thing I, I wanted to touch on that I haven't here that I had in my notes was I know at some point uh, you dealt with uh, some chronic fatigue. Yeah. But maybe to the surprise of folks listening, it was kind of before 2022 yeah. and all of this. So can you talk a little bit about what happened there, how you got through it, and then, I mean, kind of the word I want to use is like having the audacity to do what you've done post chronic fatigue. I think that's yeah. really interesting. It seems like since then you've done everything you possibly can do to reacquire chronic fatigue. Yeah. But so the big thing for me <laughs> with the chronic fatigue was not eating enough. Ah. And I think like in cycling circles is this, you know, I don't want to say eating disorder, but like this is, we look at as though we need to be lean. We need to be, you know, these super skinny guys and girls on the you know, edge of what we're doing. And I was sort of chasing that and I was, you know, following these silly diets, these paleo sort of diets and these high fat, low carb. And I was just killing myself on the bike and then not replenishing myself. And I've since learned like you need to eat and like I don't treat anything now like, yeah, I follow diets, but they're not diets, calorie restriction. It's more like perhaps change what you're having directly afterwards and change the makeup of your meals a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically all because I was starving myself. And I lost a lot of weight while I was doing it. And my performance turned to shit. And yeah. I spent months on the sidelines not being able to ride because I was just sick. I couldn't recover. I just was unwell. Yeah. And so now my focus is like, I never say no to food like I'll I'll eat and like I'm not a skinny cyclist I'm like 80 odd kilos um but like I feel like I'm pretty resilient because of that because I've got the extra weight and if I'm riding for four or five days and I'm you know I don't have enough fuel on board like I've, I've actually got the sustenance to push through that because I am a bit bigger yeah and now I try and use it to my advantage yeah yeah no it totally makes sense it's interesting at this point um, do you manage your diet much or is your burn so high that you're just sort of... Bowling? No, I, I manage it. So I've got at Senate, um, yeah. the nutritionist writes a program for me based on like, the training that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I feel like I'm at a point now where I know roughly how much I need to eat yeah. and I'm never hungry. Like if I'm hungry, I'll eat. Yeah. I'm never doing this silly, oh, I'm not hungry, but I, I want to lose a bit of weight. So I'm not like, it's like, that's not sustainable. Yeah. So it's like, I've got a diet. I don't follow it to the T every single day, but I know all right, roughly I've got to have a big thing of rice after I finish a ride and some form of protein. Yep. And then 
for dinner, I might not have a whole lot of carb. I might have lots of veg and some protein because, look, I'm actually replenished after the ride because I fueled on the ride, I fueled after the ride, and I'm going to fuel tomorrow before I ride. I don't need carbs before I go to bed. Right. right. And it's like just, you know, for sure. being a bit more calculated with it. No, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Fair enough, man. Well, there's, I mean, I feel like we could talk another hour and a half, but that was awesome. You're a beast, and that was a beast of an episode. <laughs> nice to chat, man. Thank you. That was really enjoyable. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind that you like to touch on or share? Obviously, you have some really awesome films uh, out on YouTube. Um, you have a great website. Is that just jackultracyclist.com? Yeah, the website's jackultracyclist.com, yeah. and YouTube's the same. Yep. And then uh, Instagram, the same, Jack yep. Ultra Cyclist. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thank you for, for taking the time. It was really awesome to finally connect with you and um, probably see you at Senate. Let me know if a swell is on the way because I haven't been surfing in quite <laughs> some time. a wetsuit for you. Well, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like, you know, kind of empty, empty beaches. It's this good, time mate. Of the year. It's untapped. Yeah. Could be good. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Hello again, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jack Thompson. Absolutely awesome, inspiring guy. Um, as a reminder, you can go to our Instagram, The Adventure Stash, and the YouTube channel, which is just my full name, to check out some video clips that go along with today's conversation. Awesome response to Sam Gaze's podcast. Uh, I had a feeling it was going to be a hit, but it certainly surpassed even what I expected in terms of reception. So, Thanks, everyone, for listening to that one and, and for all of your notes of appreciation and um, ideas that that episode seemed to inspire. I want to say a big thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show each and every week. I also want to thank Nicole Baker, my better half, um, for increasingly handling the logistics of this podcast. Um, she was the one that really lined up the Athletic Affairs studio here in Girona. Um, so the quality of this show continues to go up thanks to her hard work. And lastly, thanks to all of y'all who have continued to listen to the show um, and send us your notes, ideas, inspiring stories. Um, we read them all. Can't reply to all of them, but uh, every single one of them is meaningful. So thank you for your continued engagement. See you next week. <laughs>